welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I appreciate you tuning in to today's podcast. Let me tell you how this actually came about. So I was attending ESMO, the European Society of Medical Oncology in Paris in September. And I was attending one of the sessions, one of the plenary sessions, and I had the privilege and the chance of listening to an amazing talk by Dr. Miriam Shalaby, who's a medical oncologist and uh, specializing in GI oncology in the Netherlands, the Netherlands Cancer Institute. And she presented an amazing study that she actually led on behalf of her patients. Uh, and I've never seen a study like this. Uh, well, not a study like this. I've never seen data that was impressive the way that data was. During that study presentation, uh, she showed a waterfall plot uh, that is probably the best waterfall plot I've ever witnessed. And subsequently, the Shalabi, uh, the Shalabi plot did actually trend on Twitter. So what do we do on Healthcare Unfiltered? We invite the author, we invite the investigator to tell us about the process and how actually, how did we get to where we got I personally was very inspired by uh, Dr. Shalabi, uh, an amazing um, oncologist, investigator, researcher, and her perseverance is what led to the completion, well, at least to the presentation of this amazing study, which is called the Niche 2 Study. Uh, I cannot tell you how privileged I am to be able to host Dr. Shalabi on Healthcare Unfiltered. We are going to go through her personal story and how she became a GI oncologist until the moment that she got on the stage to present the amazing results of a study that she came up with its concept. She was able to secure funding and subsequently she was able to present and the patients that were enrolled on this study were the biggest winners. So it's an honor, it's a privilege to have Dr. Miriam Shalabi on Healthcare Unfiltered. Before I air the episode that I taped with Dr. Shalabi, I would love for you to find my podcast on all podcast outlets. I would love for you to subscribe to the show, rate the show, and if you have some time to write a brief review. In doing so, more people are going to find this podcast. You can refer your friends and colleagues to the show. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or Instagram on Shadi underscore healthcare unfiltered. Visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com. You can watch all of the podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And of course you need to get the amazing Healthcare Unfiltered t-shirt. All what you have to do is text me on Twitter that you are a loyal listener, a subscriber, and give me your address, and I will mail that immediately to your highness and majesty. Without further ado, the one and only, the amazing investigator, researcher, 
the talented physician, Dr. Miriam Shalabi on Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast. It's always exciting to have a first timer on Healthcare Unfiltered. Um, and hopefully it's not the last time she's going to come on this podcast. But but uh, I feel, by the way, for the record, for those of you who are listening, I feel I am, and I am in the company of a celebrity. Uh, I admit I did not actually know of this celebrity before ESMO 2022, because I am not really in the GI oncology field. But I was there and I attended a presentation and I was just blown away, not only by the presenter and her command of the audience, but by also by the science and the trial and so on. So guess what we do on Healthcare Unfiltered? We bring the author here, we bring the investigator here, and we talk about everything. So Dr. Miriam Shalabi, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. Very, very happy to get to meet you and to get to know you. Of course, congrats for all of your accomplishments, but let's start by getting to know you a little bit. Tell us about you, who you are, where you are, where you work, and and how did you get to become a GI oncologist? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, and uh, the feeling is mutual. I feel like I'm in the, in the presence of a celebrity as well. So uh, I wouldn't call myself a celebrity, to be honest. But um, I guess the attention that we've got after after ESMO has been overwhelming and, uh, and great. And so good to see that um, so many people's attention has been drawn to uh, to this study and to new adjuvant immunotherapy in general. So uh, that, that's been great. Um, so a bit more about me. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm a... GI oncologist at the Netherlands Cancer Institute in Amsterdam, and I have been since 2016. Um, and well, some things happened by chance and uh, uh, GI oncology was not necessarily the first thing uh, I thought about, but um, well, things happened and uh, I believe in uh, taking opportunities when they, when they come along. So that's what I did. And uh, I was working um, at the Netherlands Cancer Institute at that time and I stayed and I think this has been the most fantastic place to develop, especially when you're interested in uh, immunotherapy research um, together with a specialized cancer center that we are, uh, that has been a fantastic mix with uh, excellent colleagues as well. So uh, um, so I guess that was uh, um, how the, the niche was born and all the sequels to the niche study. Um, and it's uh, not one person uh, that's never possible. Um, so it's a whole lot of people um, working together to, to make this happen. So uh, um, I'm very, uh, very proud of what we've accomplished, but also very happy with everybody that has accomplished this uh, um, with us. And we were talking before we went on the air, uh, Miriam, that, um, you know, we, we have kind of similar origin, um, you know, uh, from the Syria and Lebanon and all of this. What, what got you to the Netherlands? Because you were born, you were not born in the Netherlands, were you? No, no. Uh, I was born in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Um, so to a Lebanese dad and a um, Syrian mother. Um, and we actually, I was born in Lebanon. We lived there for five years. And when I was five, yeah, that was during the war. Um, and I think uh, um, it's a reality for many people. Um, so we uh, we left Lebanon when I was five and actually uh, went to Curacao. Um, so that's an island in the Caribbean. Um, and well, that was also chance. Um, and uh, so we had family living there and there was an opportunity for uh, my parents to, to actually uh, work there. So um, things worked out and we uh, we spent, uh, um, well, my parents still live there uh, in Curacao. It's a very small island where a lot of 
Well, of course, this is a, um, a mainly American audience, so people will recognize a lot of. No, no, we're basic. global. We're global. Hopefully, a lot of people are listening from Lebanon, Syria, Dubai, <laughs> everywhere. Definitely. Uh, but so a lot of baseball players actually um, are from Curacao. And uh, um, and well, that's the island I grew up in uh, on. Um, and Curacao is part of the Netherlands. So that was the logical path to actually when I wanted to pursue medicine to go from Curacao to the Netherlands. And that's how I got here. So it's been a, 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 a fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Um... Did you always want it to be a doctor? Did you always want it to be growing up? Yes. Uh, I think from the moment I started, well, um, realizing what a doctor was, I was uh, um, saying to my parents, I wanted to become a doctor. The oncology part came later. Um, I actually wanted to become a surgeon first, um, but I guess that's how it starts for many uh, med students. But um, uh, yeah, uh, I quickly saw the light and became an internist and then an oncologist. Well, that's wonderful. It's uh, it's a game to the field of oncology and medicine, and a loss for the field of surgery. But um, so you hold on. So so you speak. You were born in Lebanon. You must speak French. Yes. Uh, well, French is the least of my languages. I do speak it. I understand it quite well. Um, but I wouldn't do a podcast with you in French. No, no, no. I mean, you know, and if if Dr. Tony Schwery and Dr. Tony Saba are listening to this podcast, their French is terrible, by the way. They claim they speak French, but it's awful. Okay, um, then maybe that's the same level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you speak French, you speak Arabic, you speak English, you speak Dutch. What else do you speak? I speak Spanish. Uh, you speak Spanish. Grew up speaking Spanish with uh, with a nanny at home, um, so Spanish was kind of my second language at the time, and uh, I speak the local language of Curacao, which is Papiamento. Um, wow. Not a very global language, of course, but it's a, it's a beautiful mix of um, of actually uh, Dutch words, but also Spanish, Portuguese, and African words. So I think it's a it's a beautiful melting pot, and the island is as well, um, but uh, the language also. That is amazing. You have a fascinating background. Um, so, you know, you start doing GI oncology and, um, you know, um, how do you split your time? Is it um, only seeing like seeing patients clinical research? Do you do something in the lab? Like how, how's your give me a pie chart of how you spend your academic life? Yeah, so um, that has changed over the past year or so. Before, I used to do mainly clinic um, uh, four days a week, and one day a week would be uh, uh, research. And, well, things started becoming quite big and very, uh, um, well, busy, And which is uh, since last year, I, uh, I divide my time 50% for research and 50% for clinical work. Um, and research is, uh, is a mix of, uh, um, well, uh, I guess, uh, writing, um, meeting people, um, discussing ideas, how to go next, what to do next. There's a lot of lab work, translational work also involved. So of course the clinical part of the studies is uh, the most visible, uh, but there's a lot also going on in the, in the lab um, and which will come after um, studies are published. And, uh, um, and that's also my passion. I love the translational part of the work. Um, and I think especially with the neo-adjuvant setting of studies um, makes it very, 
much easier to get beautiful paired biopsies and data uh, that will come out of it is, uh, is going to be a goldmine, I think, to understand better what we're doing, um, why it's working for one patient and not for the other, and how to improve it ultimately. And I think, uh, um, well, it's, it's probably not a holy grail, but there's, uh, there's so much to be learned from that. And uh, I, uh, yeah, so my passion is both for the clinical side, but also uh, much of the translational lab work. <laughs> And there's a lot that um, at least every field in oncology has become a little bit subspecialized. Like, I mean, at least in the US, some folks will only see colorectal and some mm -hmm. will see like, you know, pancreas and, and neuroendocrine tumors even. Um, is it the same in the Netherlands? Like, are you just specialized on one focus within GI malignancies? Yeah, it depends a bit on the hospital, but um, in my case, so... Um... I see mainly colorectal cancer patients, but I also do some upper GI, and also because um, I do, uh, I have clinical trials in upper GI with immunotherapy um, ongoing. So um, I see both patient groups. Of, co of course, colorectal cancer is the biggest patient population, um, and that is most of my population. But not pancreatic cancer or other um, uh, GI malignancies. You know, to give you a context of how old I am, Miriam, which is very scary when I mentioned that, but when I was in fellowship, when I was in training, do you know what was the biggest, most pressing GI oncology question? The biggest one was, how do you give 5-FU? Oh, do, yeah. you, do you give it bolus, the Mayo Clinic? Do you give it the Roswell Park Regimen? And then Zeloda came in. It was like the Nobel Prize. We actually got yeah. Zeloda, and it was, it's funny. Well, obviously, for the non-GI oncologists in me, I was fascinated by what I saw when I was when I attended your talk. And we're going to talk more than just um, your study, but but take me through the birth of the niche study, which you were the primary investigator in. Take us through the background because I know, as everybody hopefully on the podcast knows, that while the presentation happened a month or a month and a half ago, this was years in the making. Take us through the process until the birth of the study? Sure. Um, it's a story I actually like to share, so uh, I will do that here. Um, I got inspired by a colleague who was doing immunotherapy trials in breast cancer patients um, here at the NKI. And uh, that was in the, the last part of my specialization where I was an interim study coordinator for that study. And um, I thought, hey, this is something I wanna do too, um, but I wanna do it for patients with colorectal cancer and GI malignancies. And there was not much going on. And this is 2015. Um, there, there were some data coming out, but there wasn't that much going on. So, um, and here at the NKI, so we have Christian Blank, who um, is a, a professor in, uh, um, in melanoma research immunotherapy. And he was actually one of the first ones to do neoadjuvant immunotherapy studies. Um, so that combination led to me thinking about, okay, where's the unmet need? Where can we gain, um, especially knowledge? Because first it was more looking to understand better how these colorectal cancers would respond to immunotherapy. Um, and that's how the niche was born. And the idea was back then, to treat patients with both PMMR and DMMR tumors, uh, so the deficient and the proficient tumors, with a very short 
cycles of immunotherapy prior to surgery to be able to study those paired biopsies. Um, so, and see... so just for the non-GI oncologists in the audience, a little bit about yep. what you mean by DMMR and because some of the listeners may not yeah. be GI oncologists. Sure. Um, yeah, so the DMMR are the MMR deficient tumors, also the microsatellite unstable tumors, and uh, um, the PMMR are the MMR proficient microsatellite stable um, tumors. And we knew back then already that the MSS tumors, the PMMR tumors, were not responding to immunotherapy in the metastatic disease setting. Um, so, of course, that's the biggest population. That's 95% of patients with metastatic disease, but they were not responding. And, well, we didn't really understand why. Um, and the idea was, or our hypothesis was that if you treat earlier on, you have a much larger population of MSS tumors, PMMR tumors that have high infiltration of CD8 T cells. And so maybe if you treat them early on, there would be responders and you would have a higher chance of response. Um, and then we wanted to treat MMR deficient um, tumors as well, or patients with these tumors um, to compare how these tumors um, differ biologically also um, when, when you give immunotherapy. Um, so it was more of a window of opportunity study back then uh, without even knowing what to expect. Uh, we had no idea that was going to be this successful and that the responses were going to blow us away. Well, and basically blow the tumors away um, in such a short uh, treatment period. So we started, uh, that's when I started writing the study. Um, and that was in 2016, the protocol and uh, discussing with, uh, with pharma that was BMS was uh, very interested. Um, and in 2017, the study started. And uh, so, and what I love when I think back about the first couple of patients that we treated, especially the patients with DMMR tumors, the first patient was treated and then we saw that, well, the, the tumor was almost gone. I'm like, no, no, that's not possible, but okay. <laughs> then the second patient, the same thing happened. And the third patient, the same thing happened. And then I'm like, well, is, this is probably not chance anymore. Um, and how how is this going to go on when we treat more patients? And it just kept happening. Uh, one patient after another having these fantastic complete or near complete responses in that very short time frame. Um, and well, was what was interesting. So the DMMR tumors were responding very very well, but we also had responding MMR proficient MSS tumors. Um, and we published that work in 2020 in Nature Medicine um, and uh, showing that both tumor types can respond to immunotherapy if you give it neoadjuvantly and that our hypothesis and whether the hypothesis um, that we had based on the CD8 T cell infiltration, whether that was the reason, well, we don't know, but we did find something. So by now, about 29% of patients with PMMR tumors are responding to neoadjuvant immunotherapy. So that's already a very cool part of the study. Uh, but of course, the MSI tumors, and that was the ESMO presentation, um, everybody was responding. So we thought, okay, that we had included all the 30 patients that we wanted to include in the, in the study, but I couldn't leave it at that. We were doing something great for these patients, especially for those patients with the very big, nasty, bulky tumors that you really want to give induction treatment with, uh, to. Um, so then we decided to expand the study and to add, a, add an arm actually with a new uh, primary endpoint, which was uh, a disease-free survival um, and well, to treat these patients with neoadjuvant immunotherapy. And um, that's, uh, that's how we got here. Um, so uh, so it's uh, serendipity. Some yeah. of these things happen with serendipity. So let's go back a little bit. Let me. So the, you had the idea, obviously, about um, 
giving the uh, neoadjuvant immunotherapy for the DMMR tumors. And mm -hmm. you, how difficult was to get funding and the negotiation with BMS, you said, and and how did you decide? I mean, at the time, I presume there are so many immunotherapy, IO therapies out there, right? Um, yeah. Drugs uh, with IO. So um, how did you decide which IO you can accomplish and... Um, how difficult was it to, you have to sell the study to the funders. I mean, yeah. let's face it, right? I mean, so how, how did that happen? Yeah, so, um, well, that's another story of serendipity. I was visiting uh, a friend in uh, who was uh, actually doing a part of a postdoc in Baltimore uh, at Johns Hopkins. And um, I was there and uh, she was going to, uh, to a BMS meeting. Um, and then there was a call um, also within that BMS meeting for um, GI cancers and immunotherapy. And I already had been writing um, actually. Um, so things came together and then, well, I asked around if I could also attend the meeting and, uh, um, and that was possible. So I attended the meeting, I pitched the study and they were interested. Um, and it started with a, with a relatively small budget, um, but you know, I was happy with any budget we could get at that time. Um, so I actually didn't look at other um, uh, companies because uh, this was, well, this happened by chance and they were yeah. interested. In, uh, <laughs> I have to say uh, BMS has been great in, in a lot of what we're doing. So uh, um, that was a perfect match at the time and still. Um, and uh, But yeah, being at the right place uh, at the right time is, uh, is definitely amazing. not cliche. That's amazing. Um, and so let's just for listeners uh, who may have not really, let's just uh, maybe distill the study design. Like what was the study? It was a, uh, any comers with metastatic colorectal cancer? Maybe just, uh, you tell us the, the study design just in its details. Yeah, so um, the study is for patients with non-metastatic colon cancer. Um, so no, uh, not rectal cancers. And um when we expanded to the niche two and added that cohort, uh, we also changed the inclusion criteria where we tried to include only patients with locally advanced disease. So patients with uh, uh, colon adenocarcinoma without signs of metastatic disease, without signs of clinical obstruction or perforation, and patients um, who had, um, well, for this uh, part of the study, MMR-deficient tumors or MSI tumors, um, and also at least T3 or N+, based on radiological staging. That was the patient population that we treated in, uh, in NISH2. And uh, what we noticed is, uh, of course, the data, and that helps, of course, when you have some data that have been published before. So we published the first data with uh, 20 patients with MMR-deficient tumors with 100% pathologic response in 2020 already. So uh, the fact that that data was out there and people knew it, then it becomes also easier to get patients referred and because you know um, what, what patients can gain uh, from it. So what we notice is that patients, especially who need induction treatment, so the T4 tumors, uh, the patients with a very bulky disease, those were the patients that were usually referred to participate in the study. And that's why we have such a high um, uh, percentage of patients with uh, T4, um, T4 tumors. And, and Miriam, um... You know, again, some of my questions are stupid because I'm not a GI oncologist, uh, but also because my listeners may not be also oncologists. Um, but um, when you do the neoadjuvant approach um, and you start having these amazing responses, and we'll go over your presentation a little bit, 
Is it tempting from the surgical perspective not to do surgery? I mean, is it like if you're a patient, right? If I'm a patient and you tell me the tumor melted away completely, you know, I uh, it's tempting to say, well, maybe I'll just sit. Like, how did you handle that? I'm pretty sure this question came up. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, everything but a stupid question. Um, I think this is a very actual question um, that, well, both uh, doctors, but also patients indeed do ask. Um, so we did not show that data um, for, for this part of the study, but we previously did um, show some data on if we do CT scans prior to surgery, so just a couple of days maximum before surgery, we do see responses, uh, but we do not see the complete responses. We're not able to say that these patients have complete responses. Also, when you have the operation and you look at the macroscopic um, specimen, and well, when the pathologist looks at it and I'm standing next to him or her, um, there's still something there. There's still um, tumor, only it's not cancer. Uh, but that's something we find out after uh, the microscopy has been done. So that's definitely something that we really need to work on because, uh, well, when, when a patient comes back to me, I tell them their pathology report. Yeah, you have a complete response. Everybody's of course, super happy because, well, I also uh, am enthusiastic about sharing that news with my patients. I often call them. Um, even though they don't have a, um, an appointment with me at that time, I call them as soon as I have that, that information because, you know, it's, it's wonderful to be able to share that. And I have that with every single patient that I see. Um, but yeah, so some of them do ask in hindsight, but yeah, why did you let the surgeon operate me? Um, and uh, couldn't we have just yeah. uh, went ahead without uh, surgery? So um, that's a very good question. Um, but I think the, the, well, the main answer is we really need to make sure that we're able to tell and assess adequately whether, whether there's a, a complete response. Um, because in rectal cancer, we're used to that a bit more with a, um, a wait and see and watch and wait cohorts. Uh, but in colon cancer, of course, that hasn't been done before, and it's uh, quite difficult to uh, to stage uh, colon cancer. So maybe if we treat longer, if we're going to wait a bit longer, then at some point those tumors are going to disappear also on CT scans. We're working so soon. We're going to start a, a new adjuvant study for the irresectable um, uh, DMMR colon cancers because niche is only resectable, and of course, there's a yeah, how do you say that? It's, it, there's a bit of a gray area, what is resectable and what isn't. Um, but yeah, we have uh, tried to make a, a definition for that. So irresectable tumors are those where you need to remove multiple organs to be able to resect a tumor or where it's growing into the aorta or other important um, vascular structures. But that's a patient population where we're gonna give neoadjuvant immunotherapy to and follow up with CT scans and with uh, endoscopies and hopefully, that will, and also with the liquid biopsies, and hopefully that will inform us on how these tumors develop over time. And whether if you wait longer, you're gonna see that with endoscopic assessment and with, uh, with CT scans, you're gonna be able to tell that these patients ultimately have a, a complete response. That together with the liquid biopsies from Niche, uh, I think uh, um, when we analyze those, that's gonna help us a lot if we have the pre-surgery liquid biopsies um, and the dynamics thereof. And if we see that there's a clearance of ctDNA, you know, th that's all gonna help us in into doing a next study where you omit surgery. But it has to be safe for patients and uh, we have to have 
well, um, well, not 100% because that doesn't exist in medicine, but uh, well, a fair, uh, fairly high percentage of, uh, um, yeah, you know. Be benefit benefit well. risk ratio, right? And it's always the benefit exactly. risk ratio. Um, Miriam, was the uh, study that you had uh, niche to, was it uh, global, uh, US, Europe, everywhere? Or was it uh, like how many sites were there or just, just in the uh, Netherlands? Um, so only in the Netherlands, um, and we had a, a total of six participating hospitals in the Netherlands. Okay. So now you had this study and you decide to write it up and send it to, to ESMO, uh, European Society of Medical Oncology, which took place in September in the beautiful city of uh, Paris. Did you, what were your expectations as you were writing it? I mean, I, you must have been expecting that this is going to get a lot of attention. I mean, you, 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 I mean there's no way... You would have not expected that, no? Um, well, it, it's funny how uh, how things go when you know your data. Um, you know, I've been seeing this for for the past years. The one after uh, the next patient responding, this uh, having these dramatic responses, and I'm of course very excited. But then sometimes you wonder, okay, am I being biased? Um, <laughs> or, and uh, sometimes you forget how fantastic, phenomenal these data are. So when I was preparing the talk um, and well, I was looking at the waterfall plot and I would say, okay, this is, this is really cool. And then I would, but maybe not everybody thinks this is cool. And <laughs> so it's, it's weird, like uh, how, how your mind works. So of course I knew the data were fantastic, um, but I would look also at the downsides. Um, so for example, this is a single arm study and um, um, that's going to be, um, you know, that's going to be uh, some point of criticism and, you think, well, I, may, I don't know if everybody has that, but uh, you start to think in, um, well, actually, as if you're writing a discussion part of, uh, of a paper, uh, what are the limitations and uh, how important are those limitations and how people are going to perceive, uh, perceive your study and results? Uh, but I was reading, all, I was, of course, excited. Of um, course. Well, I was reading some of your tweets before your presentation and... Yeah. Um, uh, you sounded uh, a little bit nervous that you're going to give that talk, but I'm like, there's no way she's nervous. I mean, she's, you know, this is, this is going to be a no brainer. Were you nervous a little bit getting in front of thousands of people, uh, whether they are listening virtually or they are watching you? Um, I have to say that I was nervous the days before uh, preparing um, it had been a very busy period beforehand and uh, ESMO was very busy, but on that day, I was confident. Um, I was sitting there and, well, I, uh, I had talked a bit to Sapna Patel, who gave the talk before me on neoadjuvant immunotherapy in the melanoma, and it was great to be sitting next to her. And, uh, um, and yeah, so um, I guess when, when I had to walk up on stage, I wasn't feeling those nerves anymore. Um, I was ready and uh, um, it felt good. And um, we had a huge, so a whole block of the, of the front row, uh, a couple of front rows was all NKI people sitting there and cheering me on. So that was also a great feeling to have that, um, that there's so much support from colleagues from the NKI, but also like Tony Shuari and uh, all these other fantastic people that, um, that are rooting for you. And the GI oncologists from, from different uh, international centers, you know, it's great to be able to feel that support. And um, I think when we're supportive of each other, it, it helps not only um, the person who has to do it, but it also helps be working together in the future. It, it, it stimulates um, 
a whole lot more than just that support at that time. So no, I, I, I it felt good at, at that moment. Well, I was cheering for you in the back. I try to avoid sitting by Tony Schwery as much as possible. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> the room is not too big for both of us. So some of us oh, has to be somewhere. Um, but but I was really, um, uh, you know, just li- watching this. And then, and then you put on the water fall blood. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, I literally gasped and I honestly think everybody in the room gasped. Like I've never seen anything like this. And I probably give a credit to Tony because he started the Chalabi plot, yeah. if you remember this. And it literally yeah. got like, it trended on Twitter for like, you know, I mean, everybody was talking about it because I have never seen anything like this. And I don't know, I, I, I remember you paused a little bit to hopefully savor the moment, but I mean, this was, unbelievable take take me through that moment i mean I don't know, this was very amazing yeah so th- this was of course also th- to experience that was uh, was and is still special because i think about that moment quite often and uh, it's uh, it's uh, crazy and overwhelming and well beautiful um well I, of course, had rehearsed a lot um, on what I wanted to say, exactly the words. I didn't want to, I wanted to make sure I didn't omit anything that was important because, of course, you have this limited time and you want to make sure that you say everything that is important. Um, I had never rehearsed to say this is a waterfall plot. Um, But I was standing there. I showed the waterfall plot. I knew it was beautiful. um, But then I heard those gasps. Um, and that was what made me pause because I heard that I felt something and, and then, well, the unrehearsed part came out and then I said, this is a waterfall plot. And well, that's when everybody started <laughs> laughing and, uh, yeah, I, I was savoring that moment. I of course had to wait until the, the, um, the applause was, was finished, but that was, uh, yeah, that was. Well, you so- had an applause and you had some standing ovation as well. Yeah. I yeah, mean, that was, this, uh, I would say this does not happen very often at these meetings. So, um, yeah. and and I know how passionate you are about patients and patient care. I mean, ultimately, to put that water plot, water pl- waterfall plot on on the screen, and for you as the investigator, as and probably as somebody who took care of a lot of these patients this must have meant so much to you yeah that was uh, that was wonderful and uh, of course i was standing there on behalf of these patients because uh, they they entrusted us they participated in the study and um, they had these fantastic results and it's uh, um, well of course you have these you have patients that stick a bit more than others um, and so many of these stories are so incredible and um, so, for example, one of them that always comes to mind is this uh, young lady with uh, who came to me for the first time uh, together with her husband. Um, they, well, um, they weren't. Uh, um, they were just in the Netherlands um, from from abroad, living here for a couple of years probably, and uh, they came with their three-year-old son. Um, and he was sitting there with these beautiful big eyes, and uh, um, yeah. And well, she had a very, very bulky tumor, large tumor. We had to really look, okay, does she, um, does she fulfill the inclusion criteria for the study? Um, ultimately, yeah, we, we thought she did. Um, uh, well, uh, we really wanted her to. Um, and after she was operated and had a, f- a complete response, all I could think about was this little boy. 
um, and thinking, okay, so probably because she participated in this study, this little boy is going to have a mother, uh, because otherwise, I don't know if that would have been the case. Um, and yeah, that that gets to me. And uh, there are so many of these stories. So that's what we do it for. And those are the type of patients um, and the patient category that you want this to be successful in. And of course, you want this for everybody. Uh, but having at least this patient population respond so well and having these effects, not only in the short term, because I actually really believe that we are curing these patients. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's so special. Um, and then the thought that every one of those bars on the waterfall plot is one of these patients. Um, yeah, that's just. And, and I mean, I mean, and and at least in this study, it's almost everybody. I think it's ninety-five yeah. percent. Like it's it's really. And I and I and I recall because I was sitting in the back, you know, they have all of the screens, so you you could see in the although you're not up front, I could see obviously I could see you on the podium. Um, um, I could see how happy you were with the recognition, but I could also see that you got emotional. Yeah, I had to uh, um, get myself together because I realized, okay, this is not the end of your talk. You still have a very important part of your talk to go. So, okay, get yourself together and uh, um, don't become too emotional. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it was the, um, and, and I think I, uh, um, yeah, I tweeted about this. Um, the smile and those emotions were that feeling that people were were experiencing what I had been experiencing the past five years, that the, each one of these bars is a patient and that we're treating that has a fantastic response. And um, I know many of these patients, most of them by name and many of them um, I've seen. So that was that part that got to me, um, that people were seeing this. And uh, um, yeah, that was... Uh, um, I mean, that was it, it's, it's an amazing, uh, I mean, again, uh, as, as, a, as someone in the audience, um, who was watching this, uh, I really, uh, was, um, uh, aff uh, affected by this and, uh, I was clapping for you in the back. It was really amazing because it does take, I think, look, we all know that this is about patients, but it's also about the perseverance of the investigator. I mean, at the end of the day, of course, patients won, but you had the idea, you got the funding, you went through the process, and that's really why patients benefited. So it's only fair that the investigator and the treating physicians do share some of this triumph with patients. I, I don't want to take anything away from patients because this is really about no, no, no. patients, but at the, same day, at the same time, you were the one who led this. So, so kudos to you, this amazing... And I probably should know this, but I actually don't. So I'll say I don't. Is it published yet? Uh, no, not this yet. Um, uh, that we're working on. Uh, we so we published the first part uh, from Niche One in uh, 2020. Okay. Yeah, um, Niche Two is not published yet. Oh, that we're working on now. Okay. So well, better, better, better be New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah, we're uh, um, we're working on uh, we're aiming high, definitely. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, come on, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, that's 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 probably you could go higher than New England. Yeah, let's see which one. But yeah. uh, there's no question. This this is uh, looking forward to um, to sharing this broadly with people once it gets uh, it gets. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward indeed to not only with the oncology community but also with the gastrointestinal uh, surgeons, gastroenterologists. You know, everybody who gets who sees these patients has to know this. Um, also to 
um, to realize why it's important to test for MMR deficiency, uh, why you should be, especially when you consider the neoadjuvant chemotherapy in the same po patient population working in only five to 7% of patients, you really need to know that um, and the difference between that and neoadjuvant immunotherapy um, when you're treating these patients. And um, so I just want to come back to something that you said about um, the, well, kudos to the investigators and perseverance. Um, one important point there that I'd like to highlight is when, when we talked about um, how the study started. And I have to say that when I started talking to people about the study in the beginning, so many were very... Um, apprehensive, hesitant, yeah, this is a very high risk and uh, you're gonna treat patients with a combination immunotherapy prior to surgery, colonic surgery, and uh, um, that's gonna be, uh, uh, you have a very high risk of complications. And um, well, we, we persevered, of course, we had, uh, we were being very careful and uh, making sure that uh, we had run-in periods and things like that. Um, but what I also, um, and, yeah, I, I'm happy that we did persevere because that's what got us here. But especially those first couple of patients that were included in the study and participated in the study, they had no idea what they could expect and neither did we, but they still did. Um, and, and that's a great example, I think, of the combination of both uh, perseverance from uh, the PI and uh, the whole study team perspective and also from patients who do it not because they know that they're going to gain something from it, but because they want to help the, um, well, the, the science further. And uh, I, I, yeah, the first couple of patients on the study are um, especially dear to my heart because, um, yeah, how they I thought. I mean, they, they, they want to help the science, but they also exactly. tr trust their team. Exactly. I, I, I do think there's an element of trust there that you've established yeah. with them when they meet you and they meet the team that trust factor makes patients willing to actually go the extra mile. If that yeah. trust is not established, they won't do it. So uh, I'm, I want to go back to something you said that is a little bit intriguing. So Miriam, do you see a lot of physicians not testing for DMMR uh, today? We're 2022. If you take 100 colorectal cancer patients, how many do you think get not, not get tested? I'm surprised to hear that. Yeah, so uh, I think... Um... It will depend on whether it's a primary uh, tumor without metastatic disease or not. Um, so um, let me start with the latter. Uh, in metastatic disease, I think by now most patients are tested, but we still do come across patients that haven't been tested. Um, and uh, um, I think well, that's a very small percentage, uh, but it's still there. And if I also follow my um, my fellow tweet, uh, uh, tweeters um, and see also what they're concerned about, that this does happen more often than it should. Uh, especially, you know, if you're not going to treat a patient um, because um, they, well, they don't want treatment or then I understand not testing, but as soon as you're going to treat patients systemically, it's not acceptable for patients not to have been tested for um, for MMR proteins or MSI, but it does happen. And in the non-metastatic setting, um, I think there it happens more often um, because it doesn't always have direct consequences. Uh, but of course, for Lynch testing, um, underlying Lynch syndrome, that's important. Um, and well, for a long time, and I think our guidelines are changing and maybe that's the same in different countries, um, I'm not sure. But in the Netherlands, it was uh, um, a long time the case that 70 uh, patients 70 years or older were not routinely tested for MMR deficiency. 
because the chances of having Lynch syndrome um, are very small and uh, hence it wouldn't have too many consequences. But that's back in the time when MMR deficiency was only important for Lynch syndrome and right. those times have right. changed drastically. So we really have to uh, make sure that people know about immunotherapy and metastatic disease and early stage disease um, and test these patients. And even if you, for example, don't have studies where patients can, can participate in, uh, let's say you have a patient with an MMR deficient colon cancer, and there's no way that you're going to be able to give neoadjuvant immunotherapy, uh, which is the case for most countries at this time, unless you have a clinical trial. Um, and you really need induction treatment, then you're going to give induction chemo. But you really have to know whether it's an MMR deficient tumor, because for MMR deficient tumors, I would then do um, evaluation scan much earlier on um, than if it were an MMR proficient tumor, because you know that a much larger proportion of patients with the MMR deficient tumors are gonna have progression on chemotherapy. And you don't wanna miss that window uh, of being able to operate a patient uh, because you continue with the non-effective chemotherapy for too long. Um, and well, also from, from a perspective of um, adjuvant chemotherapy, uh, also in the patients over 70 years old. So I think all patients, well, I believe that all patients with colon cancer should be tested for uh, MMR um, uh, deficiency or um, microsatellite. Well, we're, we're certainly heading there. I mean, when I was in training, we were testing only in patients that you suspect Lynch syndrome. Yeah. I mean, that was that was back in the day, and then it became for every. I mean, so it evolves, and I think that's what yeah. we're heading there. Yeah. I mean, th there's no question that this is this was the highlight of your ESMO, and uh, honestly, I think yours and the melanoma trials were the ones I, for me, uh, somebody who does lymphoma, I, I was uh, very intrigued with. But in the world of GI oncology, aside from your study, what else at ESMO, for example, uh, maybe a couple of other things that intrigued you or piqued your interest that may be relevant to what you're doing? Yeah, so um, I think one interested, uh, interesting study was the Fresco 2 study um, on uh, frequentinib um, in patients in uh, later line uh, treatment of colorectal cancer. Um, and uh, that was compared to best supportive care in mostly patients that had been uh, previously treated with uh, um, TAS-102 um, and also with the EGFR inhibition. Um, and uh, there was an uh, um, uh, overall survival benefit uh, with uh, frequentinib. And I think that's, uh, um, well, that's, uh, it's not often that we see overall survival benefit in patients in, uh, with the third or fourth line of treatment. Um, so I think uh, um, those data were very intriguing. Um, I would be also very interested to see what happens if you give that much earlier on, because I think similar to immunotherapy, that probably also goes for chemotherapy, that when you give something earlier on, then uh, it's going to be more effective. Uh, but I do think that there's a very high chance of us um, uh, having that as a, a standard of care treatment in the, in the foreseeable future. Um, so I think uh, um, uh, those data were, uh, were intriguing um, and uh, um, very interesting. I also was uh, interested by a prodigy study, uh, a study um, presented by uh, uh, Julien Tayeb um, on second line treatment of uh, patients with MMR deficient tumors, where they treated with either um, uh, second line um, uh, chemotherapy um, or immunotherapy. And um, this was for a patient population that hadn't received uh, chemotherapy, uh, immunotherapy in the first line. Um, and where you see that those patients st still have a very high 
uh, chances of response, even when they're later on in their treatment lines. And well, it does seem that the uh, PFS um, is probably lower than you would expect for the first line treatment. So you should treat early on, but if you don't have, uh, or, or if you find a patient that um, wasn't tested for MMR deficiency in the first line, received standard of care first line chemotherapy, it's still very much worth it to do second line immunotherapy in this patient population. And I think uh, that was uh, um, that was uh, very good to have those data because well, I hope it's going to be impossible to do a similar study um, and that we're treating all of these patients in, in the first line. Um, so I think this is probably, hopefully, one of the last studies um, in its kind for this patient population. Um, so I think uh, um, those were, for me, uh, very interesting studies. And I think um, what I like is that we're also in colorectal cancer, and that took a while, but we're also going towards the more personalized treatment, uh, the target treatments. So the KRAS G12C uh, mutation in colorectal cancers also got a lot of attention at this ESMO uh, with both the CRYSTAL-1 um, study and the code break study showing, well, some uh, some additional data um, uh, after the previous data that had been presented and um, that we were definitely seeing uh, signals, uh, very nice signals of response um, to, uh, to KRAS G12C inhibitors together with the EGFR inhibitors. Um, and those phase three trials are also ongoing. And uh, um, I think think very eagerly awaited, even though it's a small patient population, um, that's where we're heading uh, to treat um, these patients with the most effective treatment, uh, whether it's a KRAS G12C, whether it's an ERB2 amplification, um, the MMR deficiency, ultimately that's what we have to be looking for and find these subsets. And well, hopefully we're gonna be able to identify more patients from the larger subsets um, and find a good and best treatment for that patient population as well. Amazing. I mean, really, the, the field is really evolving so fast. It's difficult to, 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 to keep up. So, I mean, how long have you been in practice, like re as an attending physician? Um, six years now. Yeah. So, you know, there are people out there who uh, spend 25 years as attending physicians uh, to get one oral presentation and to get probably one, one paper like this. Uh, truly, this is amazing progress in such a short time in the academic life of any investigator. So uh, in addition to my congrats, I mean, what's next for you? What is the next big thing you're thinking about? You're taking this, I mean, what's the next couple of studies you wanna, you wanna use this as a platform to look at the next idea? If you can share, whatever you can share with us. Yeah, of course. Um, so, well, uh, the niche is uh, um, is still ongoing. So for the MMR proficient MSS tumors, uh, we have uh, new cohorts that are currently ongoing. Um, and what what my aim is uh, within niche, so it's an adaptive study and cohorts will be added um, as time goes. And um, my aim is for the MMR proficient tumors to um, develop well, some type of predictive biomarker for each uh, combination that we're testing and hopefully uh, be able to do that also on a large scale. So do some signal finding first and then do um, uh, larger studies um, for, for the MSS patients. Um, so that's something that uh, that is uh, currently ongoing. We have two new uh, cohorts that will start soon within niche. One is for the MMR deficient tumors um, and that's with nivolumab uh, antilac 3 relatimab. 
um, also Neo Ajvan, very similar design to, to Niche 2. Um, and well, um, let's see how, how that compares to an Evolumab, Iplumab. Um, so that's, uh, that's exciting. And the, the same combination we're also going to test in, in patients with MMR proficient tumors. So we previously saw um, from another anti-PD-1, anti-LAC3 uh, anti combination that it was effective in patients with a, a metastatic colorectal cancer in a small proportion. Um, so yeah, uh, we're very excited to see how that um, translates into the neoadjuvant early stage disease setting. Um, well, and uh, next to that, we have, uh, um, I have a study ongoing in, uh, in PMMR, mainly uh, MMR proficient rectal cancers. Uh, where we, it's, it's called the Tarzan study, uh, and we combine uh, radiation therapy, uh, so a short-term radiation therapy followed by atezolizumab plus bevacizumab, um, and with an endpoint of organ sparing uh, uh, treatment for these patients. Um, so uh, we hope to present the first uh, stage of the study somewhere beginning of next year, um, and that's an exciting study, especially because you leave out all the chemo. Uh, you're not giving TNT. It's just bevacizumab, atezolizumab, um, uh, and before that, we give uh, uh, radiation therapy. So uh, that will be exciting um, uh, to share uh, as soon as uh, uh, those data are ready. Um, and well, another study that we also actually uh, uh, presented, a, well, uh, had a poster on at ESMO is the PANDA trial, which is a neoadjuvant um, anti-PDL1 uh, plus chemotherapy study in patients with uh, gastroesophageal junction and gastric cancers. Um, and that's a relatively small study with 20 patients, but very exciting data uh, where we see 70% uh, major pathologic responses um, in patients uh, with mostly MMR proficient uh, tumors um, to this combination with 45% um, pathologic complete responses. So that's much higher than you expect based on uh, uh, chemotherapy only for the same patient population and uh, with a lot of translational work also involved. Um, so that's a, uh, also a very exciting study and, uh, and a great signal, I think. Um, and there are many studies ongoing on a large scale combining uh, um, uh, anti-PD-1 or PDL one with chemotherapy, but there's in the design of the PANDA trial uh, where we give monotherapy anti-PDL1 before combining it with chemo, that makes it so much different. And we have all these uh, um, sequential biopsies from different time points that we are able to compare what happens uh, after just a TISO, what happens after you combine it with chemo, what happens uh, at the time of surgery. So, um, and there's a lot of stuff that's brewing um, that, um, well, uh, I'm not at liberty to share just yet, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to share that um, next time. Well, we'll bring you back. That's why we'll bring you back on Healthcare Unfiltered. This has been so enjoyable. Um, getting to know you, uh, just your background and how you became a GI oncologist and really more importantly, taking us through the, the steps that led to the design, inception, design of the trial, enrollment, up until you got on stage and, and you experienced what really, I would say, any academic physician would aspire to experience once in their lifetime. And I'm gonna go and predict that this is not going to be the last time that you will experience this. Uh, you know, we can tell a successful star when we see a successful star. Um, anything else I should have asked you? Anything you want to share um, as we uh, part ways? And I, I cannot tell you how grateful I am that you spent an hour with me. 
Oh, no, I, uh, thank you so much for having me. And it's been great. And also talking about not only the, the science part, but also the personal part and how things uh, came to be. And I think that's also important for people to know um, that perseverance helps. Um, um, and well, sometimes, uh, um, well, as you as you said, it's serendipity is also important, but um, there's, uh, there's a lot to be said on uh, persevering and going for what you believe in. Um, and uh, of course, um, being um, together with the people that inspire you. Um, so surround yourself by people that inspire you, I think would be um, a very important message uh, for me to share with people because uh, um, that helps so much and uh, keeps you excited and keeps you enthusiastic. Um, and well, meeting great people like you is also uh, um, oh, a fantastic experience. Um, and uh, thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, No, thank you. We, 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 get, we, need to, we need to have you back. I really appreciate and uh, Thank you for spending time with us. So um, Dr. Miriam Shalabi, the star, the one and only on Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. This was amazing. Probably one of the best podcasts I've taped. I appreciate Dr. Miriam Shalabi coming on the podcast and spending some time with me and with you telling us about how she came up with the study and how the study went from inception to completion. It is a true honor and a privilege to get to know Dr. Shalabi and how, uh, and really her career journey. So hopefully you enjoyed this podcast as much as I enjoyed taping it. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, rate the podcast, and write a brief review on the podcast. In doing so, more folks will know about the podcast and will be able to find it and listen to it. I also appreciate your support, and to show you my support of you, I will send you a t-shirt, the Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast t-shirt, upon your request. Don't forget to provide feedback by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or by sending me an email through my website, www.shadinabhan.com. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Nelson Mandela. It always seems impossible until it is done. Until next time, take care.